0: Help.com/sober. Welcome back to the Sober Powered Podcast. I'm Jill, and today I have a really cool interview for you with my friend Beth Bowen. Beth is the host of the Sober Stories podcast, and you may have listened to my interview on her show a few weeks ago. If you haven't, it'll be in the show notes. In that episode, we discussed emotion regulation and how some people feel emotions very intensely and that that makes it challenging for you to then deal with them in a healthy way. So in this episode, Beth and I are discussing our nervous system and how it can become dysregulated from frequent drinking and teaching yourself that alcohol is always the solution. So Beth explains why we are so drawn to regulating our nervous system with alcohol, what the window of tolerance is, and how this can increase your risk of turning to alcohol to cope, how to identify what your window of tolerance is and how you can improve your ability to tolerate emotions and let's get to the conversation. Hey, Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, So I wanted to have you on my show because I was on your show and we had such an amazing conversation Mm -hmm. that I thought it needed to be
1: continued over here. Totally. Thank you for having me. And I mean, I think your episode has been one of our most listened to, but definitely most like talked about episode thus far, because there were so many pieces in it that were so relatable and so good. So I'm excited we get to continue. Thank you. I love to hear that. I actually got a ton
0: of feedback from Mm -hmm. that. So it was crazy. But I wanted to talk more about you and your expertise today. So you are, for anyone that doesn't know you, a former therapist who's now a sober coach. Mm -hmm. Um, And what made you interested in working with people that are struggling with alcohol?
1: You know, the funniest part about that is that back in like, 20 what, what year did I graduate 2013 is when I got my master's degree in social work and I was like I'm gonna help people with substance abuse disorder <laughs> and yeah and I was like this itty bitty child who had no personal experience no history in this field no it was like so naive and so what's the word I'm looking for? Like, what is, like, the, the, like, virtuous, but, like, wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Cute. Cute, like, very misguided for certain. But, you know, this is, addiction has always been something that's been really, really fascinating to me. Even long before my own experience with it, even before, or I guess, probably more during like my own maladaptive drinking, because I was you know, drinking like any other grad student or college student in college. Um, so it's always been a topic of interest. But it wasn't until really my own experience with alcohol use disorder in early motherhood that I was like, oh, this is very different than I had, or I, I had understood than I had really any language or understanding of. And so it really took my own personal experience with it to realize that first off it is, it is like my life calling it's like, it feels very much like life purpose to work in this field, but also that I, I feel much more equipped to be able to serve people in this way. What's that? The, the long short of it. I think that's really interesting
0: that you wanted to work with people mm-hmm. struggling with substance use before you struggled with it, because yeah. most of the time you hear the reverse. Right.
1: Yeah. I, and, you know, I can't even really I don't know what it was about it that was so interesting to me. You know, one of my favorite classes that I ever took was Psych 101. And before that, I was a communications major. I didn't know what I was going to do with that either. But that class made me change everything changed my major, changed my career path. And I remember like one of the most interesting pieces of that was, I can still picture it, were, were diagrams of the brain and of our dopamine receptors and the way our brain interacts with neurochemistry and substances. and And that was always so, so interesting to me. But it always felt very much like something somebody else dealt with not, not, not something that could ever happen to me.
0: Yeah. Um, I think that's amazing. And in your, after you graduated and in the jobs that you had after graduation, what was your experience working with people that struggled with alcohol, I guess, in between Mm. graduation and then when you had personal experience?
1: Yeah. You know, so two jobs come to mind and I kind of buffed around with a bunch of different positions in the mental health field, which actually has I used to think I was the worst employee because I would I have a very varied job history, but I've just realized that I operate better on my own. (laughs) So that's really what I've learned there. But two jobs come to mind. And the first was in grad school. I interned my like big internship, which was a full time internship with the homeless veterans program at the VA. You know, my experience in that was that it was a really challenging population just because there are so many problems. It's not just substance use. It's not just mental health. It's not just socioeconomic stuff. Substance use and substance use disorder and all of the different variations of that was really, really prevalent in that population. And then when I worked in emergency room social work, which was really the the space that I did a lot of my career in, I would work nights and people would come in with um, you know, blood toxicity. They would have really high blood alcohol levels. Uh, it was often times where people would come instead of, and this is like a whole different policy discussion we talk about. But people that the police would bring people into the ER instead of taking them to the police station and have them get treated in the ER for for medical treatment. And then, as a social worker, we were really tasked with helping these people figure out what that looks like on the other side. And So it's, it's it's so funny to look back and think I gave out flyers for AA meetings, like nobody's business, because that was, even when I was in the emergency room, even in the mid 2010s, like that was the only conversation around alcohol use or misuse, if you will, it was okay, send them to AA. And so it's been really interesting to watch how the field is starting to catch up, there's still a long way to go. There's still a lot of lag between what you and I know about the sober community, the sober spectrum the spectrum of people that have challenges with this because of our lived experiences and because of the community that we're in. But the field is still probably like five years behind us. I think the field is like just still starting to understand that the 12 steps aren't a good fit for everyone, that there are more nuanced relationships with alcohol. But you know, it's it's just so interesting to like look back and see myself in those times where I was in those jobs, working in the fields, working with people with substance use challenges. And like I had no awareness of my own alcohol use. I had no understanding that even then, even before it was like a daily thing, I was still misusing a substance that had as much risk for me to like develop a dependency as the people that I was treating.
0: When you started to question your own drinking, did you struggle with feeling like an imposter. I felt horrible about Mm. it, but I wasn't even working, like trying to help people with it. So I can't even imagine what that must have felt like.
1: Totally. And you know, so when my drinking got really... When it had really escalated was when I was a new mom. So I wasn't working anymore. I, you know, I I was a social worker. We did the math on it. Like as much of a, a salary as I was making, I would be paying in daycare if we were to put my son in daycare. So I stayed home with him for the first couple of years. And so I wasn't actively working, which I think for me is part of what contributed to it in the first place. But also, at least it had that going for me. Like, at least I wasn't also trying to juggle a full time job. But the cognitive dissonance between knowing what I know about addiction, about the signs, about how to fix it, about how to get out of it was was brutal because it just felt so frustrating that I could know all the things. I knew all the things. There was never a time that I didn't know all the things, but I still was having this show up in my life in a way that I was unable to control. So I have an immense amount of empathy. And I, I also, oddly enough, like work with a lot of professionals that are in the medical field, in the mental health fields, in the science fields, like people who objectively know Better, quote unquote. And that's that's what they'll say. They're like, I know better than this. But it just goes to show, like, our lived experience can be very, very different than what we've learned in books. It can be very, very different in our physiology, in our like our the way our bodies work. Don't really give a shit. Excuse me. Don't really like, give anything about our book learning. They don't, they don't. Our bodies don't care about what we learned in grad school and, and how much we know about addiction. All they care about is like we have this dysregulated nervous system, and oh wait, this works great for that.
0: Yeah, I spray seventy percent ethanol all day Mm -hmm. long at work to sanitize surfaces and kill things so that the work (laughs) I do is sterile. And then I would go home and blast my body not with seventy percent, but you know, with the same thing. And Um, I just never even thought about it. I knew, I knew it was bad and I just didn't care and um, it causes a lot of shame and I feel for the medical community and the mental health community because they feel so isolated in their jobs that like they can't really reach out and get
1: support because they're worried about how it will impact their career. Well, and and I have clients who they're like this would impact my licensure like this would impact my ability to see patients this would impact my ability to maintain my license if this came out so it, like not only is it difficult emotionally like sometimes logistically it's it's a dangerous experience to be having your own challenges and substances and even like seeking treatment for that can can be problematic as you're going through that and and so it's and it's it's not only like I don't even like I, I have this empathy and it's also like I wish we could talk about this more. And we, we can't, of course, because of like the, the risk to licenses and things like that. But the thing is, is like this is so much more of a universal experience than we realize it is. And there is so much shame in this knowing better, but still doing experience. And, and, you know, that's really why I, I talk about what I talk about now. It's like, there isn't any shame in it. It's a very universal experience. It's a very normal experience. It's not even all that special because it just like statistically happens to so many people. And I say that in like, let me give you this gift. You're like, your experience is not that special. There are actually a lot more people out there who are struggling with this same thing. But I, I think it really It's one of those things that just shows it's like addiction doesn't care who you are. It can it can happen to anybody.
0: Yeah, I thought I was so special, Mm -hmm. and so unique. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the most powerful things to learn was that I actually wasn't unique at all. And that and this isolation that people have, it prevents them from learning that. Yeah. And there's so many of us that rely on it for coping. And I see I hang out in sober Facebook groups and I see it all the time and people will call themselves selfish or weak and say that they know better. But they still turn to alcohol to cope. And we just believe that it fixes our problems or it reduces our stress. Or if you have some kind of big emotion, that's what's
1: going to help you more than anything else. I actually had a friend from grad school message me the other day and she's like, Hey, this is kind of random. And you know, I still drink, but what you share has made me more cognizant of how we view this and how we consume it and how we speak about it. And she was like, I was just at a conference recently and all anybody could talk about is getting drinks afterwards. And all I could talk about was how stressful work is and how thank God for wine and all this stuff. And so even in the mental health professions, it is still really socialized and really normalized, which just leads to this feeling of extreme isolation when you realize you're one of the one of the quote unquote only people, but you're really not. But one of the only people who can't integrate this into your world in a way that feels good and adaptive?
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think something that makes us way more vulnerable to becoming reliant on alcohol is not knowing how to cope with anything. And then Mm -hmm. you drink a thousand drinks over and over and over and you teach yourself. I only know how to cope in, in one very specific way. Mm -hmm. And what we were talking about um, when I was on your show that I didn't know the term. And now I know (laughs) the term because you told me is the window of tolerance. And I've been thinking about it ever since because mm. it's so cool. But can you please tell us what the window of tolerance is?
1: First off, can you tell your story about the pen lady? Because I think that's a great precursor to this. Yes. So
0: there was a study, um, probably several, but they were looking at emotion intensity and there was. There were a couple different people, but on the low end, there was a man that was struggling with cancer and he was told that his cancer was in remission. And he was like, okay, cool. Thank you very much for the information. And he went about his business. And on the high end, there was a woman who lost her favorite pen and she went into a deep depression. For three days. And the only thing I went back and looked at the story. So Mm -hmm. the only thing that got her out of it was she heard about a sale on shoes. Mm. So she immediately jumped into the car and drove multiple hours to get to the sale. And the man with cancer that, you know, wasn't really disturbed by it. He's just kind of chilling at all (laughs) times, no matter what. And this woman is so many highs and lows Mm -hmm. and she's just so reactive to her entire environment like she has no control over her feelings at all um and i'll let you take it from there
1: we drink for a lot of different reasons and the regulation of our nervous system is one of the biggest ones. So you talk about this idea of coping and what we mean by coping is how do we regulate our physical body, our emotional experience that is tied to the physical feeling of our bodies in a way that helps us stay out of a stress response. So when we have a stress response, a physiological stress response is what our, it's our survival instinct. It's our fight, flight, freeze, spawn system rooted in our nervous system It is the part that makes us go up so that we can run from a dinosaur. In a well-regulated nervous system, in a nervous system that is at homeostasis, if you will, when we go up, we naturally come back down. This is the sympathetic and the parasympathetic parts of our nervous system. So it is very normal to experience a threat or a perceived threat. So we're maybe not running from dinosaurs anymore, but perhaps we have a perceived threat like a missed car accident or like a job performance review or something. Our body perceives that as a threat to our safety. So it activates our stress response and we go up. We get activated. Our heart rate increases. We get a little jumpy like our pupils dilate. We get sweaty. Our, our heart rate, like for me, it's always like my feet get sweaty. If I like almost have an accident on <laughs> the car, it's like I get like a rush of like intensity to my feet. So that is our nervous system kicking into gear. When we are well regulated, when we have homeostasis and when we have good coping mechanisms, we are able to come back down from that threat once the threat has ceased in adaptive, in beneficial ways. Sometimes our body just knows how to do it. That is what we call like the parasympathetic nervous system. Sometimes we use coping mechanisms to to kickstart the parasympathetic nervous system if it's not going. And so we have this natural up and down. One of the things alcohol is really good at is kickstarting that parasympathetic nervous system, the part that brings us back down. So when we are highly activated, when we're up and the podcast is so hard because I'm like, I'm going to draw diagrams here and I need like T-charts. Like so when we when we go up and we are stuck on, we can't make ourselves come back down from this activated state, we can't make ourselves come back down from this threat response, then we are likely to turn to something artificial to do so. And of course, that's where the coping mechanisms come in. Sometimes they're adaptive. sometimes they're maladaptive. I don't like to say good or bad because there's morality wrapped up in that we're just going to say adaptive versus maladaptive. Alcohol is a maladaptive coping mechanism for this. But it's like you said, we start to teach our bodies to do this. We start to teach our bodies that this is a useful tool to kickstart that parasympathetic nervous system to bring us back down. So that's like, okay, zoom out. We've got our our stress response, understanding how our bodies react. In a normal nervous system, in a normal human experience, we have these ups and downs. We have activation, we have deactivation, we have feelings of being really high, and we have feelings of being really low. When we think about high, it's hyper arousal, so we are hyper aroused. If we think about low, we have hypo arousal. So If we think about this fight, flight, freeze, and fawn system, fight and flight are the high ones freeze and fawn are the low ones very normal to have these ups and downs where the window of tolerance comes in is the window of tolerance as we're thinking about like this little like bell curve parabola you're the scientist i don't know what they're called but like these these wavy nervous system ups and downs across the whole thing we have two straight lines and the top of that is at the top of our window of tolerance and the bottom line is at the bottom of our window of tolerance. And there are going to be highs and lows that go past that barrier. Still, still like a normal regulated nervous system is going to have experiences that are so intense, whether that's the high or the low, that are going to go above our window of tolerance. Those are going to feel intolerable in our bodies because we are outside the window of tolerance. That's when we're going to need to get outside of ourselves with something else to cope. Still normal. What happens when we start to, well, it can happen two different ways. Some people are inherently people who have narrower windows of tolerance, meaning the the distance between the top part and the bottom part is just smaller. So they have larger existences in those intolerant spaces. So we can be born, and, and I think this we, we talked about resilience in, on our podcast and what we understand about resilience, and, and I want to like link that into this idea of window of tolerance is we have inherent resilience we're born with god-given etc we can also learn resilience so it's it's not one or the other it's not you're stuck with what you got or you have to learn it it's like both of those window of tolerance is the same way so we might be gifted in life with a narrow window of tolerance, but we can change that. We can make it wider, or we might have a wider window of tolerance that we narrow by other things that we're doing. So when we're talking about this idea of using alcohol as a coping mechanism, that is starting to teach our body that our window of tolerance is getting smaller so our window of, of being able to cope so if we start like we only use alcohol for like the worst of the worst and we use that to cope every other time we use alcohol it's just for fun that means you know we've got a pretty chunky pretty big window of tolerance if we start to use this for every little stressor that starts to tell our body that this is a great coping mechanism which it, which it's, it's a very effective coping mechanism <laughs> it's, it's not a great one but it starts to tell our body this and it becomes less and less tolerant of those highs so we shrink our window of tolerance meaning we're spending more time in these hyper or hypo arousal states so all that to say what we take from this is is twofold we can change our window of tolerance our window of tolerance is manipulated by our lived experience so we can both like widen our window of tolerance make it larger so that so that we have less experience in those really high highs and the really low lows but we can also shrink it by essentially like one of the there are a lot of things that shrink our window of tolerance but like using alcohol as a coping mechanism is one that's going to start shrinking our window of tolerance and what that translates to is that we start needing it more and more to be able to tolerate our day-to-day experience Of course, the window of tolerance is impacted by our stress levels, our physiology, our sleep, our relationships, our environment. Like there are a lot of things that go into it. But it's this one thing. It's like if you can work on increasing your window of tolerance then that means you're going to be less likely to reach for something to get outside yourself so when we think about this pen lady when we think about the pen lady she's got a super itty bitty window of tolerance it's really narrow so that means she spends a lot of her time really high a lot of her time really low they feel like intolerable experiences so she has to she's very reactive she has to get outside herself with something shopping or freaking out or yelling at a friend Cancer guy like probably has to (laughs) big of a window of tolerance because, like, I feel like you should have some emotions when you are told that you don't have cancer anymore. So, like, questionable what his his situation is. But that just goes to show, like, we can have different physiological different emotional reactions to even the same thing like even if we say pen lady and cancer late cancer guy have the same experience pen lady drops her pen has her reaction cancer guy drops a pen he doesn't have a reaction we can we can understand that we can have the same experience but our our physiological Experience of that experience. I'm using a lot of experiences there, can be very different because of our window of tolerance. It's like once you understand this, then we can start manipulating it.
0: Yeah, and I will send out a picture beautiful in beautiful. my <laughs> weekly email. And if you're listening to this later in the future, it's on the episode website. Perfect. Um, <laughs> but people might look at cancer guy and be like, he's really strong. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: He's a really strong person. Mm -hmm. And people might look at pen lady and say, why is she so weak? Yeah. And I always try when I talk about resilience, especially, Mm -hmm. I try to be very mindful of not just like you were saying about not putting morality into it with like good and bad coping strategies. I don't want to imply you know, weak versus strong. Mm-hmm. So how is this different from like, how strong you are as a person?
1: I mean, I think it's completely related. I, I, I believe that there is no such thing as a strong person versus a weak person. I believe that there are people that have physiological and like environmental and historical experiences that are directly impacting their ability to act in the world as a quote unquote strong person or as a weak person. And that doesn't mean we're fixed. I think that when, and, and I know you and I have talked, Like I think language is really important because language carries a lot of weight, which is why I don't say good or bad. I say adaptive versus maladaptive. I truly don't believe that there's just an inherently strong person. I believe that there are people that have circumstances in their lives. They have genetics, they have support networks, they have low stress loads or whatever it is. Or even if they have really extreme life circumstances that are difficult, then they have the physiology that backs them up. Like there are just so many components that go into the way a person is able to show up in the world that it really, like it really, this idea of a strong person or a weak person really should just be thrown out the window. It's a person who has a nervous system that is calibrated to a certain experience and it's not a fixed experience.
0: Yeah. And like you said, there's a lot of different components. It's not just, you know, inherent strength mm-hmm. versus inherent weakness there. Mm-hmm. You listed a, whole, a ton of them. I'm not going to relist them. But <laughs> there's like there's so many things that go into it. Um, so what would the signs be of having a narrow window of tolerance like maybe someone's listening and they're like oh my god
1: I did lose my pen recently and it was like a thing how do they know that's them I mean it's just like you said like when you feel those really high highs and you feel really low lows and and they feel intolerable I think that's the kicker, like, because we still can have these high highs, but they're within our window of tolerance, which means our physical body can tolerate them without having to freak out. So it's, it's this idea of reactivity. Like, is your life really up and down? Does it feel like the sky is falling every time something happens? Are you really quick to snap at people? Do you have a short fuse? Does it feel like, like, Everything is a major stressor. Like that would tell me that you have a reduced window of tolerance because it feels intolerable. That's like, that's the really key piece of this. We may have the exact same up and down curves, but when our windows are smaller, that means it just doesn't feel like we can physically, emotionally deal. We can't cope. So when we think about this idea of like, I love nothing more than a lay on the couch day doing nothing. (laughs) And like can be in this state of hypo, this low arousal, but it feels fine, feels good, feels supportive to my life. But there might be somebody who's in hypo arousal, really low in this freeze or fawn state, and it feels unbearable. Like that's, that's the thing. And and when we get to this unbearable state, that's when we use something to get us out of that state. And we want to throw another theory in here. One of the the things that I teach is so much of our drinking comes down to seeking a rapid state change. So from state A, emotion, feeling, experience A to state B, emotion, feeling, experience B, and as fast as possible. So when we're in an uncomfortable state, if we're in hypo arousal or hyper arousal, and it feels uncomfortable, it feels intolerable because it's outside of our window of tolerance. What we're going to use then what our body is seeking then is something called a rapid state change from point A to point B as fast as possible. And, and all of this, if we think about this more globally, like all of this is our body trying to regulate itself. All of this is our body and our brain trying to get back to a baseline, a quote unquote normal state of like, this is our average experience. And, and the more we, narrow down this window of tolerance the more we ricochet between these rapid state change agents the more reactive and like the more exaggerated it becomes so when we think about a rapid state change agent alcohol is a really effective rapid state change agent it's really effective at taking us from point a to point b so if our point a is agitated Anxious, we're like feeling like we're firing on all cylinders. We t- we drink alcohol. It's a physical depressant, so it's going to take us to that relaxed state. It's going to dampen our nervous system. It's going to turn the volume down on that experience. On the flip side, if we think about being bored, one of the things alcohol is one of the very few things that is is a depressant, but it's also a, um, a stimulant. So like our our experience of it at the beginning is stimulation, and then it eventually works as a depressant. So if we're bored. And we want to get out of that state. We know alcohol is a really effective state change agent to get out of that. So, all our brain has done is learn that this works for us. It's only learned that this gets me from point A to point B really, really fast. So, when we bring this into the window of tolerance, This gets me from this uncomfortable hyper arousal that is outside my window of tolerance and it gets me there really fast. But what we know about rapid state change agents is there are a lot of other things that accomplish the same goal. They might might not be as fast, they might not get us there as quickly, they might not be as rapid, but they achieve the same end goal to get us back to state B or get us back to homeostasis with this idea of this rapid state change with this idea of the window of tolerance and with this idea of starting to use alcohol as a coping mechanism for all of it is like the, 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 Volatility that it is introducing to our physiology and like the rate of ricocheting that we are doing is going to further dysregulate our nervous system. It's going to further dysregulate our physical bodies, our neurochemistry, our experience in our bodies so that eventually... We get to a place where we have to have it. Eventually, we get to a place that our nervous system is so dysregulated. Our window of tolerance is so narrow. And the only thing our brain thinks works, because it is a rapid state change agent, is alcohol. And that is when somebody finds themselves in physical dependence. And it doesn't have to be the man under the bridge. It doesn't have to be the man under the bridge with the 40 in a paper bag. It can be the grad student or the new mom who, at the end of the day, is so dysregulated, whose window of tolerance has been so reduced by stress, by experience, by physiology. Like, I had really intense postpartum depression that was impacting it. Like, that narrows your window of tolerance. And then you find yourself in physical addiction or at least psychological addiction with this belief that this is the only thing that's going to fix it for me.
0: I like the way that you're describing it as like a dysregulated nervous system and you are not describing it as like a person who doesn't know how to cope. You might be saying the exact same thing, but I think that understanding that it's not like who you are. It's like what you got. It's like your circumstances and like your nervous Mm -hmm. system and, and the stuff, you know, and, and Mm -hmm. like who you hang out with, like, it's what you have. Mm -hmm. It's not who you are. And I think that's been really helpful for
1: me to understand, like about myself. Well, and we're still not past this idea of it being a moral failing. Like we're getting there, but we're still not past or well into this space where we understand this is chemistry. This is the way our bodies are operating. This is our environment. This is like, we, we can get into a whole different conversation, but like we are not giving ourselves the right education, the right tools, the right coping mechanisms, the right environment with our work conditions and all of this stuff. Like, no duh, so many of us end up here. It's not personal. It's not, didn't pick us because we're a bad person. It picked us because this is just chemistry, and and much like this idea of like you're not special for having experienced this, you the global you. Like I want to, in some ways, this is extremely personal, and and we can get to a space where it feels so so deeply personal. And I think there's some value in stepping back and saying it's not personal. This is your body doing what it knows to do best with the tools it has at its disposal. And when we talk about coping mechanisms, I think that's really important because the the worst of my drinking was when my first son will was born so i had always had you know not the best relationship with alcohol but it was pretty typical all of the you know all the normal things and then when my son was born i was a newly stayed home mom i had undiagnosed postpartum depression i was very isolated i had a lot of he was a hard baby so I was sleep deprived he had a dairy allergy like all of these things and even knowing as much as i knew as somebody who has a master's degree in social work and somebody who is in the helping profession, in the mental health profession, I didn't know on like a tangible level what a coping mechanism was. I didn't know that these are the things that helped me get through stressful times. Because first off, we don't teach social emotional learning. We teach book learning. But second off, like coping mechanisms are so personal that it's really like you have to, it's trial and error. You have to figure out what works for you. And I saw a really interesting TikTok about this the other day that was like, when we talk about trauma culture and we tell people to relax and rest and like, that's the antidote to them. They're like, that's really terrifying for a person who doesn't know what kind of rest feels good for them because that is very personal. So if we say rest, they're like, well, what does that mean? I don't know what that means for me. And then there's like this whole new shame. It's like, oh, I can't even relax. I can't even rest well. But, but when I was in this experience where wine was my only coping mechanism, I had all the book learning. I had all the textbook. I could tell you about the, you know, racial, relational, cultural theory, but I couldn't tell you how do I unwind at the end of a day with being a stay-at-home mom in a stressful day at home and feeling like I had lost my purpose and dealing with these mental health crises. I didn't know. And so learning that on the other side and learning these other rapid state change agents is something that I had to figure out. And it's like, no doubt, none of us have coping mechanisms. I don't know how to do my taxes either. I really would have loved to learn how to do that in high school too. But it's it's interesting too, like raising kids now, I I would like way rather my kid be emotionally mature than him getting an A in science because I'm like, nobody taught us how to deal. Nobody taught us how to live in the world in a way that's adaptive, in a way that's useful. We have this system that's rigged against us anyway. It's easier to get wine than it is to get Lexapro. It's it's so not personal and it's 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 like a rigged game. Like we're all set up to fail in this, whatever iteration of failure looks like, just like but it's like nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> nobody knows how to actually cope and how to actually deal.
0: Yeah. I was that person that didn't know how to rest. I, it was different wording, but I went to a therapist and I was like, I'm so overwhelmed all the time because <laughs> yeah. my window of tolerance was probably like a flat line. Like mm-hmm. there was no mm-hmm. window, mm-hmm. but I'm so overwhelmed. Like I, I don't think I can survive. That's Mm -hmm. how I feel. And then he said, how would it feel to just sit with it? I'm like, I don't know what that means. Like, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to picture, like, am I supposed to sit and feel like Mm -hmm. what's going to happen if I do?
1: And it never helped. Yeah, that's a really good example, because. When And I know what your therapist is just trying to tell you to do. He's trying to teach you distress tolerance. It's another tool. And we say, like, sit with the uncomfortable feeling. And they're like, well, what the hell does that mean? I, like, what do, do I just sit there? Do I stare at the wall? What do I do? And what is more useful is to say, all right, I want you to feel uncomfortable. I want you to sit on your couch in your cross-legged. And I want you to do five rounds of box breathing. Then I'll teach you what box breathing is. And like, here's actually how you execute on sit with it and, and 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 i think that that there are a lot of buzzwords like that and like ground get grounded to be be grounded do grounding exercises and people are like i don't this is like a foreign language i don't know what this means and part of it is because we have like influencers in the world making memes with pretty graphics about like just be grounded and people are like that doesn't translate but part of it is like we just Truly, have not been taught like the tangible steps of this is how you cope, or this is the type of movement that is useful for stress, or this is how you get better sleep. We're telling you to rest. Here's how we teach you how to sleep. Because if you just tell a stressed person, if you just tell a person whose window of tolerance is really narrow, just get more sleep, they're gonna be like, "Cool, I have major insomnia. That's not gonna work for me." Or like, it, we're skipping so many steps, and so of course all of us are using what else is just easy to get our hands on. It just we're we're missing we have a gap. We have a gap in what we're teaching and what we're saying. And 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 it's you know this idea like rest I think it's really well intended. And, and I'm probably guilty of this, too, like talking about like rest versus productivity culture and not being like hyper specific by what I mean by that. But I think the more specificity we can get, the more actionable, tangible tools we can get in people's hands. First off, the more likely they are to execute because they understand the assignment. And then second off, like the, the better and more well the collective will be because they have actual tools they can use.
0: I think all of that is fantastic and Mm -hmm. you said it perfectly like everything I feel like I have all these jumbled thoughts and then
1: you're like here's what you actually want to (laughs) say no I'm like on a train too though like the the other part of like how wordy I can be is that I can like just I'll be like on a train to Vienna because I just (laughs) go off in in a thousand different tangents so if someone is
0: listening to this and they're like yeah rest you Mm -hmm. know being grounded like Mm -hmm. I wish Mm -hmm. what is like one of the early or a couple early steps that they can do
1: to just learn what those things are for them you know and as cliche as this is like I still teach the breath as the very first thing I believe and we have a lot of research that says that the, the breath is a really interesting part of our body because it's an autonomic system. It's an autonomic function, which means it happens automatically. We don't have to think about it. It's like our heart beating or our digestive tract moving. Like these things just happen in our bodies. It's the only autonomic function in our body that we can also intentionally manipulate, which means we can change this autonomic function. We can't change the way our heart's beating just by thinking about it. We can't change the way our digestive tract is just by thinking about it, though I wish I could because mine's not the best. But The breath is something that is tied to our nervous system. So as we talk about this nervous system dysregulation, our breath stimulates the vagus nerve that's tied to our nervous system. And all of these things come together in like this beautifully portable tool that we can take anywhere with us that's free of cost, that is easy to do. So if you're like WTF does grounding mean, WTF does sitting with it mean, the first thing I want you to start with is five deep breaths. Like not even anything fancy. We're not talking about lion's breath here. We're not talking about cr- crazy, fancy breath work. Like five deep breaths is a more efficacious tool to regulate our nervous system than like almost any of them. It, the data says so lived experience. Says so, so even just sitting here, closing your eyes and then intentionally manipulating that breath for five deep inhales, really great. If you can go through your nose, five exhales going through your mouth, if you can, the amount of work that will do to calm your nervous system down, to bring you back within your window of tolerance is going to be so, so helpful. And, you know, like once you've mastered that, you can do like box breathing or alternate nostril breathing. Like there are a bunch of different kinds of breath work. But breath is the easiest, most portable. Like it's just we, we always have it with us.
0: Yeah. And once we can get back within our window, mm-hmm. we can deal with it. Mm -hmm. It's the being out of the window that makes us feel like crazy and out of control. And like, you know, the world's about to end if we don't make this go away. Mm -hmm. But if you can do something to just bring you down a little bit, then you might be able to deal with
1: it Mm -hmm. a lot more. So, yeah, I think breathing, going on a walk. Well, when we talk about grounding, and so really what we mean by grounding is like, How do you root back into your physical body into the present moment? So when we think about being in a stress response, when we think about being in this fight, flight, freeze or fun experience outside of our window of tolerance, we are like. Is so deeply in our animal brain, which is like the brainstem, the amygdala, these these spaces back in this limbic system. We're so deeply in this animalistic brain that we've like left our bodies. <laughs> We're like on a different plane. We are running from dinosaurs. So when we think about grounding, it's like, how do we like zoop us back into our body? How do we like bring us back into this moment, bring us back into our prefrontal cortex, which is our thinking brain. And, and when somebody says grounding, they're like, well, what does that mean? What I really think about with grounding is like, I want you to feel your butt sitting down on a chair. I want you to feel the point of connection between your feet and the ground. I want you to like think about what you hear in your present environment. I want you to notice what your body feels like if it feels hot, if it feels cold, if you feel temperature, if you feel texture, if you feel some sort of sensory experience. And so when we think about grounding, it's like, how do we get back into this body? Because so much of our lived experience and so much of, especially with alcohol, it's like we are completely disconnected from our physical bodies. So if we're thinking about grounding, like, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm all like neuroscience, but then I'm also like, go, go stand in the grass barefoot for like <laughs> <minutes>. <laughs> because that also like, I believe nature is also very healing and very useful for us, but like that's grounding, feeling your feet in the grass putting foot to ground and like noticing that feeling that is grounding. And that's going to jump you back into your body, into a part of your brain where you are able to actually act out accordingly versus like complete freak out mode.
0: And what does alcohol do if you're in complete freakout mode and Mm. you do that
1: instead of ground? Yeah. Well, so alcohol is a nervous system depressant. So if we think about this is all a dysregulated nervous system, alcohol will regulate the nervous system and it goes often it goes too far to the other side so we can go into like really hypo arousal but it's also something that over time if we teach our body that's what we need to regulate then it furthers this dysregulation dis- it furthers this experience so when we say it's an, a, a nervous system depressant what that means on a tangible level is it like dampens down the nervous system so if we think about we're firing firing on all cylinders we're freaking out when we drink alcohol that kind of like zips it all together. It like stops the firing. It makes it to where it's tolerable to be in our bodies. Again, everything feels a little fuzzy. Everything feels a little warm because we have, and you know, like I visualize it as like we literally pour this down our body and we have that feeling of like, ah, oh, there it is until it throws us too far until it starts trashing our mental health, until it starts building this physical dependency. So it is it's a very effective tool and it's almost instantaneous, but it's it's one that has such deep repercussions to it.
0: Yeah, and it's hard in the beginning, or really anytime, to trust that the other things you do will mm-hmm. work yeah. and to resist knowing like alcohol does fix it. Like you said, mm-hmm. like that's a fact. We don't have to learn like alcohol doesn't help. It actually, it right. does really right. help in the short term, but we have to learn to think about the whole experience and what's really going to help like future us.
1: Well, it's, it's by degree too. So even though the other things will work, they won't work as fast. They might not be quite as effective at getting us into that window of tolerance, and we do it anyway. We do it anyway because it's all in service of letting our nervous system heal, in return to a wider window of tolerance, return to a more stable baseline that is not so highly fluctuating. So that's that's the other part. It's like I work with some people, and they're like, "When's it gonna get better?" I'm like, "I can't." tell you that. I can't tell you. I don't know what your physiology is. I don't know what your brain chemistry is. And I want you to keep doing the thing, even though it feels stupid, even though it feels like it's not working, even though you're like, it's like that meme. It's like going on a stupid mental health walk for my, (laughs) a silly little walk for my silly mental health. Like there is virtue in that, even if you don't feel it in the moment, because Long term, what this is doing is healing your nervous system, is letting you return to a baseline that is overall easier to cope with, easier to manage.
0: Yeah. And if you imagine like your window, and every time you pour alcohol on it, it gets a little bit smaller, not noticeable, but a little bit smaller. And after a year, you notice it. Or you imagine you do the stupid stuff and it gets Mm -hmm. just a tiny bit bigger and you don't Mm -hmm. notice it. But if you look a year ahead, And you see where you are versus where you could be if you were, you know, shutting it down with alcohol. It's a big change. And that's that's the hard part. We don't feel like the positive change that's happening because it's Mm. it's slow and it's not noticeable. But when you reflect back, it's like, wow, I am
1: kicking butt here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I tell people when they're in that stage is like this is when you need people. This is when you need people who understand, who have been where you are or are where you are and can say like, no, keep going. It'll get better. It feels like hell right now, but it will get better if you keep going.
0: Yeah. And see the proof Mm -hmm. that they are where you want to be. Yep. Yep. You are amazing. Thank you. I adore you.
1: (laughs) See, (laughs) look at us. We we could talk about this all day again. (laughs) (laughs) Part three. Part three. Yes,
0: exactly. (laughs) So how can we connect with you? How can we follow your work? What do you have going on? Everybody listen to your amazing podcast. That's going to be in the show notes, but tell us all the things. Beautiful.
1: Thank you. Um, So I kind of have two different corners of the internet. My podcast is Sober Stories. It is um, one of my other, like a thousand LLCs, but it's a company that is a multimedia company dedicated to really just sharing these stories. We shared your story and it was so beautiful and so well received, really just with the intent of allowing somebody else to be seen in a story or allowing them to see somebody else who they resonate with. We tell very diverse stories. We've got kind of a wacky one coming out tomorrow, but we tell these different stories so that somebody can hear them and know. And then I also work with women in group and one-on-one settings through my coaching service. So if you want to find me, long story short, you can find me at We Are Sober Stories. That's sober stories, or my personal pages at Beth Bowen underscore. Um bunch of websites too. <laughs> we can put them in the show notes. But that's, you know, kind of what's going on in my world thank you yeah and all that will be in the show notes
0: um and this was amazing this gave me a lot to think about i need to think more about everything mm-hmm. you said about the nervous system and how that being like its own thing it's not it's not a moral thing or who you yeah. are so look out for future episodes
1: beautiful <laughs> the nervous yeah. system. do we need to just like start our own podcast as if we have <laughs> yeah. free time you know <laughs> we don't have free time but i think we would have fun maybe someday. <laughs>